welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today on the show, we have Mr. Tony Benia of B&W Rigging. He's a longtime rigger extraordinaire. He's the owner and founder of B&W Rigging, which is a unique company. They can do things that almost no one else can do. He invents his own rigging hardware. He has a background in touring and theater, and now he runs these massive projects. And I don't think it'll be a surprise to hear that he's also a big fan of ETCB certification. And with that, I would like to welcome Tony Benia. Hi, Tony. Hello, Mr. Marin. Thank you for joining me. No problem. It's great to be here. Good to see your face. <laughs> on our on our streaming i know at this point it's almost good to see anybody's face yeah well this is like it's what i do half the time you know i'm on these virtual meetings and stuff all the time these days i definitely want to hear about what sort of things that you have your fingers in right now are especially considering that the business is nearly shut down why don't we just go straight there what are you up to right now these days i've been uh doing lots of estimates for outdoor structures drop i've got a different video wall led structure to support anything from a just a lightweight projection screen up to a led wall that's 100 by 56 feet tall 100 feet wide structures and doing estimates for building those structures for whether it be drive-in movie theater style stuff or um concert thing or uh graduations but it's a tough algorithm for these companies to get a good solid estimate of how much money they'll actually make so it really hasn't sold a lot because you know it's not cheap to build these things it seems like that's kind of been the problem you know when i've seen people talk about oh you know we can do shows for 30 percent 35 percent 40 percent of the standard audience size and for commercial things those numbers just don't work yeah it doesn't really work in the sense that you have to maintain a company right you have to you have people you got to pay it's the time we're in right now we'll get all through all this and i'm a very positive person that is true (laughs) this too shall pass we'll get through all this may take a year or two or five who knows but you know five years from now i would like to think we're gonna look back at these times and just be like wow that sucked but we got through it and we're gonna keep moving forward right but my whole purpose these days have just been you know make sure the company's here on the other side of this and stay relevant help people with their projects whether it's personal or their companies or whatnot you know just try to help you know and i think if we all just try to help we'll we'll all get through this thing it's hard for me to feel that level of optimism in my position but uh i i think it's important to feel that way if you can yeah and i think it's important to sit to send that out into the business well i mean as a society you know i'm a very big kind of picture thinking We've been through really bad shit and gotten through it. The end of the world isn't here. We're all just going to get through it. The business that you do is necessarily local. I know that you've done stuff all over the country, but you know the majority of your work is in the New York metro, as far as I know. Yeah, you know that uh, we tend to stick around in the tri-state area. It's tough to do larger jobs of the eclectic nature of our clients that we we do, like uh, custom rigs or whatnot, because. First of the audience has to be readily available there. You know, there's a lot of venues, there's a lot of places, there's a lot of uh, business in New York. You know, New York is one of the epicenters of the world. You know, so to try to mimic the type of shows that we get invited to do in the middle of the country, you know, just the logistics of getting that gear there tends to put a downer on the whole budget. 
because it's just it's a lot of infrastructure to push along, especially when it, a lot of the stuff we do is so unique that it takes a lot of effort to get these things to where they got to go. So we end up like pretty much local for a lot of the jobs that we do. Well, I mean, we don't make widgets in our business, especially like with what I'm doing. It's a service we're providing. We get hit up with a question. Can you do this? You know, and I never say no. I mean, I'm just not, it's not in my vocabulary to say no to that something can't be done. Because at the end of the day, like we're dealing with physics and a lot of like geometric science. So we can always figure out the way. It just really turns into time or money you know if you've got if you don't have enough time then you need to get some more money and we'll make more time by adding more manpower or doing more prep work and pre-building and yada 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 let's talk about what you do let's talk about what is your current place in the business what is bnw's current place in the business bnw is a production rigging company we pretty much lift stuff up off the ground put it back down but we also do it in terms of a project we work with other vendors and our clients and the production team. We don't look at a job as just like, we're going to put this in the air for you. You know, you bring us something, we'll put it in the air. We're part of the solution, right? We try to help cultivate a good atmosphere for these jobs to happen in, in the production terms. A lot of times when we get the call to come into the conversation, the job, a lot of the job has been figured out and not, not necessarily figured out, but like, a lot of it's been put together, but they don't know how to get from what's on the paper to reality, like what's up there. So a lot of what I find myself doing is translating the idea that an artist or the designers have and help them cultivate that idea into the reality of what a venue that they're choosing to put this into. You know, we do a lot of work in a lot of unique buildings that they've never ever rigged anything in the air in this building so we go in and with a survey team uh, have engineering come in and take a look at the building and come up with like a rigging scenario to put up whatever it is we need to put up whether it's just a lighting rig or if it's a crazy art piece or um, a combination of all the show elements video walls projection sound audio lighting blah 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 Giant inflatable moon sometimes. Giant inflatable moon, you know, video wall on the side of a building that needs to go up just for 10 days and come back down. You know, that was a pretty good one for Tiffany's. We work a lot in the fashion world, helping out those clients to get their vision across because they love to go into all the unique little nooks and crannies of New York City and the tri-state area. So that's a lot of what we do as a company help productions come to fruition, right? We build structures. We help design the integrity of structures. I like to say that we build the bones, right? Like we're not very, we're not, we're not there to make it pretty, right? But we are there to make a safe structure, be it ground supported or flown, but a structure nonetheless that can cultivate the ideas of the overall design, whether it's just the lighting designer and it's a very light, heavy show, or if we have aerialists that are going to be a part of the show and they need their space, you know, we kind of, it's like air traffic control. We're kind of like looking at the space and reminding all the players that they're not the only one in this fish tank and we all need to swim around together and not collide, right? And there's layers to that too, adding that third dimension because it's easy to look on paper to say it's going to work. But when you layer it in, there's been a lot of conversations I've been a part of that when we start the conversation, they're thinking so 2D, they forget that like 
we have different heights and we can store things up in the air and maybe it'll move a little bit and we can swing below it and then come in or rig through certain aspects or we can't rig through certain aspects. You know, that comes up more often that like on 2D, yeah, it looks cool and it can happen, but we have to go through this other thing in the layers that we have up in the air. I'm thinking about those cases where it's like, this is perfect position for lighting. Unfortunately, audio also feels like it's a perfect position. And both lighting and audio are correct. You know, it's not like you can decide, oh, no, 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 one of you deserves to be there and one of you doesn't. No, both of you have a really good case for being in this place. So there has to be some kind of additional structure installed to make that work, make that happen, because it should happen, because it's the right thing for the job. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I, I feel so grateful that you really got me into the idea of just start in 3D. Yeah. That way you can see the truss and the lights look great like there, but don't forget there is a gag flex, and then there's a motor, and then there's the chain space that the motor needs. There's this additional height that just you consume, and then other departments are going to consume space too. And again, it's not just there air truss yeah and sightline and visual aspect and really like we need to look at it from a level playing field everybody's important but it depends on what the show like the point of view from the end client whether it's perspective for an audience or whether it's perspective for a camera you know it's like there's going to be two different ways to approach getting through those problems of who takes up this space audio or lighting and i so wish on the shows that you and i tend to do that it really was just the audience or the camera yeah it's usually both (laughs) it's both and then it's up to the end client to determine who they care about more in in that circumstance you know do we care more about the audience perspective from table five or do we care about the camera perspective that has fifteen thousand viewers over there you know, so which perspective are we going at and how should we conceal or hide or what we're looking at in layering or blocking the screen, blah, blah, blah. It is funny that depending on who's sitting at table five, they literally might be more important than the 15,000 people watching Yeah. On, on a live stream. Yeah. You know, and that's not for us as that's not for me to decide. You know, I try to keep aesthetics, even though like I have a very strong background in aesthetics. I try to keep it out of the conversation because it's not my concept. I want to help cater to whoever's designing it, and it's their decision. And really, sometimes it's getting them to understand that they need to make a decision on this. I find like we're in these conversations in production meetings so often, and it's like we we just need you to decide if it's going to be point of view of camera or point of view of audience, you know, and then we can like give you all these different ways to to succeed. You know, but if we're catering to both, it, it may not work for both, and you need to choose one or the other. You know, you're absolutely right. Pointing out that this is a choice that has to be made, and we're not going to make it for you is actually very good. Yeah, this goes to trust and relationships with clients, right? So when you are coming in with clients, like when we deal with, like in event halls, we're dealing with these design firms coming in, and it's the first time they're dealing with us. So there's a lot of we have to build up trust for the first time, real quick. Some of those event companies, they're used to doing stuff on their own off wherever, and they bring their production team with them. And there's a lot of trust. So they may, they've gone through those choices together, right, already. So it makes it go faster. Now, we have clients like that, too, like where we just work with these people all the time. We can predict what they want so we can predict it and and get ahead of it and make those decisions for them. And it just makes the job easier. And everyone wants to work with people they've 
enjoy working with. It sounds like live events, especially live events that are singular, are the kind of space that you inhabit. Yeah, we deal with just, in essence, one-offs. You know, they're sometimes they're literally like, you know, load in that morning show and load out that night. And other jobs, it's like we're going to load in for a month for this one party, and it's going to be a wedding. And then they're going to do the wedding and we're going to take it down. It's going to take two weeks to take it down. You know, so we've done the gambit from like quick one-off, smaller jobs, but they're all basically one-offs. You know, we rarely get a job that's going to be like a show every night, like a theatrical performance or something like that. I mean, we help out with those, but most of the time they have their production company that, you know, and their carpenters and whatnot, and they build up a thing. We, we do actually some of the stuff like, we provide a lot of the labor for like at the park have armory they do shows that will be installed and and run for a couple months or a couple weeks um but we're typically not a part of the day-to-day running of those shows they have a show call crew that do that stuff we go in make connections to the building advise consult and you know help problem solve in pre-production so how did you start BNW and what was the genesis of BNW? BNW started as most companies do for people, I think, as I'm charging for stuff. I need a company for my taxes and blah, blah, blah. You know, I came off tour and started working in New York City and I saw that there was a little bit of a lack of knowledge, per se, of like rigging knowledge. Um, and I remember I was doing a show for like a load in at Steiner Studios. And uh, there was just some not awesome rigging practices going on. And we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and the dude that was doing the not awesome stuff was just like, yeah, I own all this gear. And I was like, oh man, this is uh, this kind of scary. Um, and at that time, the ETCP started coming out with them. Um, they started their exams. And uh, I went and took that exam, the ETCP exam, in 05. You were the first year, right? Yeah, I was part of the first class. Went down to Orlando, Florida, and took the arena exam. I got my ETCP certification there. My certification number is 00015. I'm number 15. Because my name starts with Bonilla B. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I passed that. And then I got interested in teaching. So I started teaching some seminars, just trying to get the knowledge out there. But you know, like teaching is kind of inherent in me. And I love talking about rigging and the right ways, or, you know, the, the ways of rigging. I don't want to say right, because there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, right? So preferred methods, the way I prefer to do things, uh, reasons why, you know, there's like five different reasons why you'd put a shackle in a certain way, but there's going to be two other reasons where it excludes that and you should do it the other way. So it's like you know, looking at the reasons why uh, we have rules and getting people to understand that and teaching them is like a day-to-day thing. When I was on jobs and I was just a production rigger doing my gig, showing up and running crews and coming in with the plan and teaching, my, I've always like looked at my job as working with the guys to get them because we're all going the same direction. So my goal is not to force them to get this job done. It's to work with them to get a job done right? To, to kind of just show them the path to get this rig installed. Because a lot of what we do is like rig and repeat or, you know, to pull a point, there's a motor, the motor is going to attach the truss or whatever it is, we're going to fly it up. Gravity works the same. So 
it's been interesting getting into some of these different genres of rigging going from concert style, theater style to like construction site stuff, you know, because we've gotten involved in large format construction projects of big lifts where we're still in, in all three of those disciplines. We're, we're lifting stuff off the ground. The language is similar, but, you know, little different words here and there, colloquialisms. Even when I was on tour, it was from like different words for the same piece of equipment on the West Coast versus East Coast. It was like we're still doing the same things, you know, and and that expression of ideas across the country was really cool while I was on tour to uh, bear witness to that, you know. Well, so speaking of which, uh, let's talk about your early career and touring and how you ended up in theater to begin with. There are those kids that go to school and learn theater and they get involved in it and they continue it as a career. I went to school for art uh, in general. I was in school for sculpture at Montclair State University in New Jersey. What was your favorite medium? Well, I I worked a lot with uh, life drawing and life sculpture and I did bronze casting stuff and I had a great time with that. But I always was kind of drawn, my friends, the people that I was drawn to were all involved in theater, right? So I was kind of 3D visual arts and they were 3D uh, practicum arts for theater, you know, like doing so in in some ways, they're kind of the same thing. We were just doing really big 3D stuff. They were doing it in a theater and I was doing it uh, in the visual arts with these bronze castings and other like environmental install installation pieces, but always like 3D, right? And again, it's same terminologies, just... You know, there, there's different words for each thing. Like when you express volume in theater and you're talking about light, there's light has volume. But then you can also talk about like volume of a piece of sculpture, like a hard thing. That What's that volume and how that affects the 3D space, you know? So those terms are interchangeable. And it was, it was interesting to difference in language, but similarities in language, you know, in two different arts. That's a really important point, and it's a good reminder that you can grab information or knowledge about uh, the visual arts or the performing arts from a lot of different places, that sculpture can inform performing arts, that, like you said, that light, you're modeling, you're molding. Yeah. And there's a lot of allied design disciplines and arts that are all doing something more similar than maybe they realize. Yeah, I think... um you know, at the end of the day, it's all the arts, you know, so whether it's performing arts, whether it's the visual arts, whether when you deal with music, they, they all have a lot of similar terms to express our ideas and how to describe those ideas. So at any rate, like I went to school for sculpture, but a lot of the people I hung out with and the people I and the work that I enjoyed was in the theater. I got a job with the supervisor of facilities for the theater on campus. And, you know, I'd just run paperwork around for him. And then he was like, oh, we have a show coming in. Do you want to push a box? And I was like, sure, I'll push a box. I'll make a little extra money. That sounds great. And I was really good at pushing a box. So then they put me on lights and they were like, you want to hang some lights? And I was like, sure, I'll hang some lights. And I hung those lights really well. And it caught the attention of like the technical director there. And he's like, you should become a theater major. And I was like, well, I'm happy in the arts you know, visual arts, but I took a lot of theater practicums and I took a lot of theater classes, you know, and, uh, by the end of my college career, I got offered a tour to go on tour because I have, you know, I like to think I have a strong work ethic. So I got offered to go on tour with the circus. Which circus? I was a Cirque Ingenue, which was kind of a Desoulet 
theatrical version of Desoleil before Desoleil got in the theaters. So I got on tour with them, and that was pretty rad to be able to tell my my fellow students that like after school I was running away with the circus. <laughs> and uh, I went on tour with circus for a year, and then jumped from tour to tour, primarily doing theater. Uh, Lil Orphan Annie. Then I went over to Cabaret, and did Fosse, and in between I did like a Mercedes Benz Ride and Drive and some other short stints. And I rarely was home. And when I was home, I was just rock climbing. That was my big passion through my twenties was uh, just getting out on the vertical rock and you know climbing everywhere I went on tour. And it was really cool to be to have that exposure because I played every type of venue you could think of on tour. You know, we were playing outdoor sheds to big arenas to small theaters, the old vaudeville run of every little town in Pennsylvania, all the way across the country to Waco, Texas. And like just just all these, uh, you know, little towns that followed the railroad that the theaters all were built on. And it was was cool to see the history of that, as well as like learning to rig. You know, it's that's where I got the rigging bug really was when I was on tour with the circus, because I was just a second electrician or third. I was the third electrician. I, I like just did everything that nobody else wanted to do. I set up the Pony projectors. I focused the lighting rig and I ran the spotlight. But in my downtime, we would sit in these towns for, you know, two weeks or so, or, you know, we did a lot of one nighters too, but primarily, you know, the tour I was on, we did mostly one week sit downs and I would help with the rigging because there was, you know, it's a circus. There's a lot of rigging. Um, and that's where I really got the bug to rig. And then every show that I toured after that, I dealt with all the rigging and then did whatever else had to do. So, uh, on those shows, how many riggers did the show tour with? Oh, it would be, yeah, the Cirque show that we toured was, primarily like one rigger responsible and then the two carps would help and I would help, you know, so it it wasn't like they toured with a lot of riggers because it wasn't, it was a theatrical show at the end of the day. So we were going into venues that already had like the rigging, like theaters that had rigging going on already. At least there's a grid. Yeah. And you know, this was 25 years ago, you know, uh, it's come a long way as we all know, and we've seen the technology of Cirque performances and show installations, the size of the shows that are out now didn't exist back then, you know, to do these Cirque yeah. shows. You know, this was before Ingenue, they were still doing it in tents. They weren't even going to theaters yet or doing like their sit-down shows in Vegas. They didn't exist yet. So uh, that big, really big idea of technical rigging, you know, that hadn't been around yet, you know. I mean, Christ, the moving lights, we were like the first tour to have moving lights in a theatrical version. You know, that was the big thing, you know. Uh, what uh, what were they? With Cirque, they were like the old VL uh, 5Bs. I think they were oh, those okay. things. Um, I thought perhaps you got some of the earlier stuff than that. Well, it's the VL2s and VL5s. I remember distinctly those. Um, and we had our Verilite Tech on tour with us. You know, I, but I never went down that road of electrics and lighting i had the opportunity to and i kind of stuck with more of the carpentry end because that kept me in the rigging world right which i always thought was funny though because more times than not we're putting lights on the truss and motors than the scenic shit so it was kind of funny that like the carpentry end of the world catered to what needed to happen with electrics and audio because they sat on 
the rigging, right? Is that because of, in a lot of cases, I'm saying, not saying in all cases, but in a lot of cases, the head carpenter is kind of responsible for the whole show? Yeah. And, you know, I've come to realize throughout a lot of my tenure in rigging, when a show goes into a venue, you know, you don't work from the bottom up, you work from the top down when you're putting shows in, right? So you got to get the rigging in place and up in the air first before you can really come in underneath it and build the stuff. So everything on the ground is going to be dictated by what's in the air. They have to really merge together well. And the head carpenter, especially like, you know, when you think in terms of theater, the head carpenter, yeah, is in charge of getting the shows in and out and the rigging and the line sets of where everything's going to play. There's some there's some flying scenic that has to line up with the automation track and the deck. Yeah. And then everything else is around it. So it puts all that control of where that goes in hands of the head carpenter, right? And that just kind of lended itself to getting involved into when we get into arena tours and when we get into large, just environmentals, right? Which is now that, that it pushing out of theaters and getting larger than just a basic rig in an arena, getting into these environmental experiences and these really large format arena rigs, especially in the one-off terms, that cultivated the environment for production riggers to become like part of an actual department. I feel like I, I kind of saw the span of time where production rigger, there wasn't a production rigger. It was the head carpenter did all the rigging, right? And then the rigging was just getting more and more involved where it was like a show would have six or 10 motors. Okay, cool. And a little bit of trust and then line sets and stuff. And then it got into an arena thing. Okay, now we've got like, okay, we're 20 motors and that's a big show. But the carpenter still dealt with that stuff, put all the motors in the right place. The electrics would hang on it. The line rays would go up the, the scenic and then, you know, he'd lay out the rest of the show underneath it. Then it just shows get bigger and bigger. So now you need someone that's just worried about the rigging portions of it because it's also like capacities of buildings. Somebody that's looking ahead to all these new venues that have never hung anything in them before. And the tour is coming in and it's going to hang. Back then, you know, a 50,000 pound show was gigundous. Nowadays, that's nothing. Our, our average show is 50 grand, between, you know, between 35,000 and 50,000 pounds. That's like your average kind of rig. You know, now you'll have a 50,000 pound button. Yeah. You know, where just one part of the show that you're moving all together is 50,000 pounds. Yeah. You know, I there's several jobs in the city that I've done where I've had over 50 grand on a button like that. I've moved a grid or I've moved like the second story of a building or any of the stupid stuff that we get asked to do. Not that stupid. I love doing this shit. But like <laughs> that's why I love it, because we, we get asked to do such unique, big things that like sometimes there a lot of people would turn down, right? They, they wouldn't want to do, they don't want to be responsible for something like that, or it's too complex or too big. And that's, those are the jobs that I thrive on. You know, I, I enjoy the challenge of doing like, whether it's something small or something big, you know, it's uh, the uniqueness. That's, uh, that's what drives me. Kind of gone away from the original question of how B&W got started. That's okay. You know, I came off tour and started B&W in the sense of I was just uh, teaching seminars. But there wasn't a company back then, though. You know, it was just me. It was a tax ID number. Uh, I wouldn't consider it a company. Even like after we had the beginnings of a shop, still, I don't know. I would just laugh at it and be like, ah, we're just, you know. I was just trying to educate, right? I was just trying to teach dudes how to rig and rig efficiently and think differently about how instead of like this is the way we've always done it. Like there's 
different ways, you know, bringing in aspects from, you know, because when I was on tour, I dealt with the gamut of people. You know, you go to one town and everyone on your rig team were firemen. And you go to another town, everyone on your rig team was a steel iron worker. And you go to another town, they were all actually theater people. So you had different ideas of how to tie knots and pull points and do the work and kind of this conglomeration. You go out west, it was like a bunch of rock climbers on everything. You know, so using the different techniques that all these people have and can contribute, it made it interesting to be able to come back to New York after touring for like eight years to come back and see how they're doing it and then offer different ideas and how to rig something you know and some people wouldn't they wouldn't be cool with it they like this is the way we do it blah 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 and it's like yeah but if you do like this and this then it makes it a lot easier you know or like the you know three steps ahead trying to think three steps ahead and what your outcome is going to be because at the end of the day like everything we do is predictable right there there's nothing in rigging that should be just like oh look what happened Woo-hoo, we lucked out there <laughs> you know no it should be like Hey, when you do a lift, like there's not, everything is predictable. Like it's all based on gravity. You know, the swing you can, there's math to figure out all that shit. So you can, you can determine the amount of horizontal force you need to retain a pendulumed truss rig that's in the middle of your arena, but you want to fly it up over the seats. So all your points are made over the seats. And so you have this big swing. You know how much weight that's going to be there, how much force it's going to take to sit there. There's a there's an equation that you just punch in the numbers and they'll tell you, you you need like 800 pounds to keep it there. So you know it's too much for three guys to hold. Let's get the forklift over here and tie it off to that. You know, and you can predict that. And I know I I, I know I've worked with a lot of people that wouldn't do that math or would just do it the hard way and they just carry all the crap up the the arena steps and they build it in the seats. And I'm like, oh, man, it's so hard. <laughs> it's got to be an easier way. And not that, like, I'm the guy that thought of that shit. It's there, you know, I saw somebody do it, and we figured it out. Then I think about the situations where it's like, oh, we have this great idea that that's how we're going to do it. But then you find out that this arena has this low ceiling structure that all the chains would have to bend around if you actually try to do that. And that's why they've always built it in the seats. And it's like, oh, no, why would you design a venue that way? And it's, I don't know, the consultant is long gone, and this is what we were left with. Yeah. You know, in a lot of those arenas, too, they weren't designed to do this stuff. They were designed to, like, play hockey, not float rigs in the air, you know? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the challenges of starting and owning a business that provides the thing that you love to do. And is it difficult to sometimes not do the work that you love because you're running a business that does that thing? First, like, I didn't start this company. This company just kind of happened. It wasn't on purpose. I, like I said, like I was just doing it to teach so I could keep my paperwork, my money end in line, right? It just turned into, because I love teaching so much, I would, people would gravitate towards my jobs and they would want to work with me. And they, so dudes would stick around, you know, and they became really good friends. You know, we would go and I'd get asked to rig something and I would bring the crew with me. And then I ended up just, all right, well, I'll payroll these guys too. Cause like, this is how much they deserve to get paid. And I became like kind of the broker between that. But at the end of the day, it was really just about the work. It wasn't about a company and it still is to me. Like it's about the work and the challenge of the work. I wouldn't say I'm a very good business owner. I don't pay attention enough to like the classical senses of business. You can ask anybody that works with me, like, 
we live in that freelancer based society, you know, where we have a lot of permalancers, you know, the guys that, you know, they primarily work with us, but it's a different way of looking at employment. You know, they're not full time, even though the government will say it's full, they're full time employees. They're not really full time employees because they still have the freedom to go do their other things. But as far as B&W and how it came about and me, myself, I kind of always just considered myself working with these guys, you know, and that just brought us to having good work, right? We bring good things to the table and we get us more jobs. And then, uh, you know, I got tired of being at the mercy of rental houses and their subpar gear. So it it drove me to buy some of my own gear because I can't show up on site and be expected to put a rig in the air safely if I'm given ratchet straps that are torn or if I'm giving motors that are clunky and not timing right with the other motors, right? And at the end of the day, the end client doesn't look at where the gear came from. They're not going to look at the company on the side of the box. They're going to look at me and why the rig isn't up in the air. And I have to be like, this is a bunch of crap gear and I'm not safe putting it up. It's not safe to go up and we have to get different stuff. Well, that nobody wants to hear that. So needed more control over the gear, the quality control of the gear. And then also like atypical gear, you know, we're pushing the limits of the working loads of a lot of the gear when we're doing jobs, when we're, you know, we're doing all the math and it's all being done safely. But like, I need a 60 foot span to get across this dome to get to where the other rig point is. And the only truss that you can rent to do that at the time was like swing wing truss. And it's like, that shit's so heavy per foot and it's got great capacity, but it's like really, really big and no clients wants to see truss in the air. So it's like, especially when you weren't planning on pre-rigging with it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just going up as a mother grid. And yet you have this massive pre-rig truss up there. Yeah. Just for capacity. Yeah. Nobody wants to see that. And there's other products out there that can be used, but you can't rent that shit. You have to own it. So bought some of that so that I can do my job to the best of my ability with the technology that we have. So bought some high capacity truss that's like smaller 20 inch truss instead of 30 or 36 inch truss that have basically the same capacity, be able to do the same spans and get the same job done, but it's smaller and it isn't as intrusive to the experience that the designers are trying to get out of the room, you know, and that quality control as well is what we needed to do. So I got like a storage unit up in Yonkers and was like, okay, well, just, I just need a place to store some of this crap. And then we just kept getting jobs, you know, the group of people that I was employing and we were working, we were doing good work and I was bringing up some production riggers underneath me that would like, okay, you run that job and I'll run this one. And we bounce around, you know, and, uh, just started to collect more gear and just getting opportunities, you know, where it ended up being like three years down the line. And I'm like in this shop filled with gear and we've got two trucks and, you know, a bunch of dudes working full time in the shop. And I'm just like laughing at like, look at all this crap that we own. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> crazy. Like I'm, I just want to rig stuff. And, uh, yeah, we had like an opportunity to do a self climber up on top of a mountain and it went away and then it came back. Back then it was like hard to, first it was very, it was difficult to rent it. You know, you couldn't just rent it. They needed to send people with it. And it's like, all right, well, I don't need anybody to show me how to use this crap. I know how to use it all. 
And a lot of the ones that existed were for doing outdoor concerts. And so it's all built with 120k park hand rig built into the truss. And like, that's what it is. Yeah, you know, and uh, we needed to purchase some. So we purchased a four post climber. Then the job went away. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, at least we bought it. We'll have it. And you can use it for other stuff, too. And then the job came back last minute. So it was a good thing that we bought it. And we had to rent a little bit more and got it to kind of jive with uh, the other system of truss self climber and went out and did that job. And that was a really unique job. That was on top of uh, the mountain next to Aspen. Um, We were working at 11,000 feet and uh, it was for a wedding and they wanted to get married in front of this mountain range behind them. So we had to point the chapel. We were building the chapel. It was a replica of the Crown Thorn Chapel at the Catholic Teaching University in Arkansas. So Crown Thorn, they looked at that and they were like, can you build us this? But we want it on top of Aspen Mountain. So I said, sure. And I drafted it up in 3D and got it kind of look the same proportions and they loved it. So we went up there and did a site survey, six feet of snow. And they're like, it'll be six feet underneath us and pointing in that direction towards this other mountain. So that was a, that was a really unique experience. And that was pretty cool. And that was like one of the, I'd say that was like kind of the, kicking the off the cliff moment, I guess, of BMW, that was where, okay, this is actually a company now. Like we have a group of dudes really working. We're doing really unique projects. We own gear. It's funny that that, well, that's the job you feel like that was the one, because I know that for me, it seemed that way at least a year before that project. I feel like that was a job because of, we owned some of the gear. We owned most of the gear it was the core group of dudes we were doing. And there was other jobs happening at the same time back home, right? So we were starting, it wasn't just me, right? It wasn't just me as a production rigger. And I've said this for years, you know, the whole point of B&W rigging was to get my name, Tony Bonilla, off the piece of paper, off the bill, off the call, you know, like, you know, don't call Tony, call B&W. Like I've, I've always been trying to like get my name away from B&W because, you know, up until that job, it really was just call Tony, give Tony a call, give Tony a call. And it, it really, after that job, it put B&W more on a map of, oh, they're a real company and they have good dudes. And it wasn't just me doing all the, all the work. It was like we had, we'd have multiple projects going on. That leads into like three things I want to talk to you about. Okay. But if you don't mind, why don't we pick that job apart for just a minute mm-hmm. and then we can move on to some of the other things because that was one of the most unique projects i've ever seen and i'd like to know a little bit about the process and the things that you had to do and how you sorted out handling the engineering remotely when you know you're in new york the project's in colorado you're going to need an engineer snap on this thing obviously and just what was the pre-production process well it started with a phone call as most of them do hey tony we have a job and it's in aspen i can't tell you anything about it though do you want to do it I'm like, <laughs> sure. What? What is it? That is such an easier answer for a programmer <laughs> than it is because it's like, hey, I have a job. I can't tell you anything about it, but do you want it? Sure. Yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> you know, it's I'm, I'll be in front of a desk. It's no problem. Yeah, like, uh, uh, you know, well, I'll send you an NDA. And so I'll sign the NDA. All right, now I can send you, this is what we're doing. And I was like, oh, really? Uh, you know, you want to, you know, they were like, we have this couple. They want to get married on top of this mountain in front of a mountain range, you know, and it's going to be like on the top of Aspen mountain and the guests will take the gondolas up to the top of the mountain, get in a Mercedes Benz sprinter van and two miles into the back country is where this meadow was. And do you think you can build 
a church up there for us. And they love this church, as I mentioned before, Crownthorn, right? The Crownthorn uh, Chapel, which is in Arkansas at a Catholic university. They didn't have any real renderings or drawings. I looked up Crownthorn online and took the PDF of like the front of it, put it in the Vectorworks and started building out a chapel with the same proportions from the front. Because this, what they wanted when they originally came to me was they wanted it to be 120 feet long. This crown thorn is only about 60 feet long, you know, the actual building. It's a beautiful building, though. It like brings that. It's one of these buildings that's just mostly glass with a lot of steel structural beam, very ornate, though, in its beam work and uh, proportion. And it brings a lot of the outside world in. I, I feel like part of the aesthetic of it was to really like to commune with nature as well as the Lord, you know. So I took that PDF and I put it in the Vectorworks and I extruded it out and put truss in the right proportions and tried to figure out, okay, we're going to be on top of a mountain. Uh, they'll have some generators, but it'll be a couple days in. So we'll be able to do a self-climber, but we have minimal power, blah, blah, blah. But we'll build the bones of it. And then they're going to come back and clad it all and make it look like big structural wood beams and do a lot of the ornate work that way after so we we were responsible for the structure and getting that structure built i mean the top of the thing was 40 something feet up so the apex was like 40 it was about 30 wide and we ended up we designed it originally at 120 feet long and on paper that looks easy then it got budget cuts and we got it to 90 feet long um, and that's what they settled on so it was a eight post climber in pairs you know so it was every about 30 feet there was a section so there was eight posts and we did kind of a unique doubled up beam work for the, the apex of the roof to make the gable, right? Um, and so that was not crazy rigmarole. I had some guy lines out to, uh, you know, we didn't want to haul concrete or deal with water up on top of the mountain. So we went with ground anchors because we were able to like, just put ground screws into the dirt. Um, so that was our plan going into it. And, you know, we work with an engineering firm that's, they, uh, McLaren Engineering is primarily who we work with. A uh, bunch of great dudes over there, and they can stamp a drawing for all 50 states. So they know what's going on with all the codes and everything across the country. So we like to work with them a lot because they can stamp like all over the place. And went through the engineering process with them. And uh, when we got on site, that I went and did a site survey. And the site survey was in April for a June load-in. And so even though it's like only two months away, there was still, they were just finishing up their ski season there. So we had to take a snow cat like up the mountain. There still was six feet of snow in this meadow. So we couldn't really get a real lay of the land. We could see that there was some slope. It didn't look too bad, but that turned out to be a lot of drift because when we actually got on site from one end of the structure to the other, it went downhill nearly seven feet. You know, it was over a six foot run to rise over that 90 feet. So making like the building out the structure took a little bit extra effort because, you know, we had to get the vertical towers in place with the horizontals, but the horizontal couldn't just lay flat on the ground because then all the verticals would be like on an angle. So like we had to like build it and we clicked it up with ratchet straps along from each tower section, to each tower section and got these horizontals built out with just like chain levers and come alongs and ratchet straps to like just get the from zero to the run arise of six feet downhill 
and then hooked up the motors and was able to take a little, get it going up in the air a little bit. So that was, uh, oh man, you know, and because of the ground was all under snow, there's permafrost that melts out. So the ground was actually very soft and the majority of all our, of our heavy equipment just sunk right up to the axles. So we ended up having to come up there with a whole bunch of plywood and lay it all out as roads. And uh, it was all stuff like we kind of thought would happen. So we weren't really surprised by it, but it was stuff that we were like hoping uh, we were hoping the ground would be a little sturdier because that lent itself into us planning to do the ground anchorage, the ground screws. The ground screws went in and we needed to get 8,000 pounds of capacity out of it. And we were only getting around two. So we had to like do four anchors and equalize all that tension between four ground screws to one anchorage point to then go up to the structure. So it was a little bit of creative rigging there as well, uh, a little bit on of dealing with that on site. But it was an awesome, awesome job. You know, we have a lot of beautiful pictures, and uh, it was a good time. It was a good group of dudes, and it was very unique. And that was like about a week to load that thing in, and then there was a show, which was the wedding. You know, they did the wedding. And the best part of it was, is that the following day when we were going up to start striking, we get up there and I'm talking with the EMT that was like assigned to it. Like that was there, that was part of the site management. And he was like, there was this couple that came up this morning and they hijacked their own wedding. And they literally (laughs) like came at six in the morning at sunrise and got married in the chapel. So they got a free wedding out of it. (laughs) they had heard about it down in aspen and they were like oh this will be great we'll go hijack it and they came up and the mt was the actual witness for their wedding so that was pretty cool what kind of heavy equipment were you using high reach forks we had a couple of those so we had they were we had 245 jlg high reaches and two 40 foot jlg scissor lifts and that was about it you know and then just a a couple all-terrain forklifts uh, as well, but we weren't really dealing with a lot of weight because we were ground. We were putting all those ground screws in. It was just more about like tipping up some of the towers and working at height, uh, primarily for the carpenters to clad it. You know, uh, we did it as a, a climber so that we could keep the roof of the thing down, and it didn't get a solid roof. It was very abstract in that sense. Um, so they were rolling the dice a little bit in the fact of like no rain for the wedding because if it rained it they wouldn't be in there they'd have to move it all inside there there was also 27,000 square feet of tent that came up on that mountain too um for the reception and the other parts of the party so it was like a little village that they built up on top of the mountain in the back country and you'd never know it would have happened now like i've seen pictures of the fields that we were in and it looks better than when we started you know they actually like for the for the party, they wanted a bunch of birch trees, but the meadow didn't have any birch trees. So they brought birch trees up in big pots <laughs> and they bought them all. And so after the after the party happened, they planted and created a little birch forest <laughs> over on the side because it was in the field that it was in was a old silver mine. So it was like oh, the, the whole area was deforested, I guess you'd say, um, became a meadow that way because of the mine that was there. So it actually like doing the party helped the environment there, you know, cause, uh, it got more manicured. I don't know well, a good word for that, but, uh, 
it, it definitely did help the environment out there. You know, there was a lot of complaints that we were doing it and we were destroying the environment. And it's like, uh, for that short time, yeah, we tore it up for a little bit to put the tents and the structure there. But the family that was there that, that had the wedding, they love the mountains and they love nature. So they restore it. They, it wasn't even restoring. They made it better. Right. Yeah. You know, so I think that's cool. You know, it was tough at the time. They got a lot of negative press for it. But at the end of the day, it was still pretty cool. And what they did afterwards was great, you know, in that sense. So it was a really cool project. Yeah, they, le- they left it better than they found it. I don't understand the issue. Yeah. You know, it's because in the short term, everybody sees it and they're just thinking they're just going to leave it trashed, you know, and uh, they did. That's film production that does that, not private events. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that this was the, the first time that you had multiple things going on at one time and that this was the time where, you know, you were away and you had stuff happening back in town. And, uh, you know, I feel like this is a really good question for anyone that does anything in production where suddenly they've got more jobs than the ones that just they can do. How many projects do you have happening at one time generally and how do you manage them? How do you part them out to your team? That's a good question. And uh, it's a bit of a seasonal thing um, in New York City, uh, which is primarily where we work. So let's say May. Yeah, uh, May is pretty busy. I would say the fall is busier for us. Um, cause we only, we, not only do we manage these one-offs, we manage several venues in the city as well as our preferred vendors at two other large venues. Um, so we manage the Cipriani spaces, the rigging department for the AV company that's in those. And those are, there's four spaces there that we manage. And then we're, we're like the preferred vendor at the shed, um, in Hudson Yard and at the Park Ave Armory to help them get their rigs up in the air, uh, as well as Brookfield down at World Trade Center to do their art installs. So we help all the, those places. Um, and each one of those places, you know, I try to keep the same head guy running those jobs. Um, and they kind of manage the expectations of the client. So I learned that way in the beginning when I got off tour and I was like the production rigger just putting shows in and out of Cipriani, right? And at that time, there was only one venue. There was only one Cipriani space. Uh, so I was like the head rigger there. And the production company that was in there kind of changed hands a couple times. Um, and what evolved out of that was, ended up myself being in charge of the rigging department um, for the company that became Star Group of Cipriani. So having that base and those couple of venues you know, all the venues don't have a really big job at the same time. So it allowed me to like kind of bounce between the bigger shows and any lesser show would be the second guy. Well, those lesser shows kept getting bigger and bigger. And so then it turned into now there's two spaces with two really big jobs going on at the same time. And I can only be at one of them. And then it would turn into, well, two spaces with several big jobs in the same week. And I can't be at both of them. So it would turn, it turned into, it went from myself kind of managing the shows, which I, you know, I'm a firm believer in that the head guy should book his own crew. This way, the guys that show up on the call know who's in charge, who's their boss, right? So if I was booked, if I was the head for a job, I would book the crew for it. And this way I can, I'm their point of contact, everything from soup to nuts, from pre-production all the way to the end of it. Um, 
And I instilled that into the guys that worked for me uh, that would run the jobs uh, that I was overseeing them. So then it turned into I wasn't overseeing crews. I was overseeing production riggers. And I would bounce from job to job. And the production rigger would be running the crew. You know, they, they'd be the head rigger. And I would talk to them about the rig and just kind of keep a hierarchy there. You know, so that's kind of how that information gets disseminated as a company at this point. Uh, we get a call, whether it's myself or now, nowadays, because I've, I've diligently worked hard at trying to get my name off of like every single job. Some of the production riggers have their own clients and they get a call, right? So some of the dudes that I work with, they'll get a call from a client and they'll oversee the rigger that's working underneath them, you know? So that it's about like just bringing up strong production riggers, you know, both in drafting and pre-production and planning as well as execution. Right. And from soup to nuts, you know, from hiring the crew to making all the drawings yourself, it's not one centralized nervous system of a company that like, all right, here's the labor division and they do all the booking. And then here's the production and they do the drawings. And then here's the budget people and the salesperson. Like that's, that kind of convolutes the whole conversation and it makes it very difficult on site for to make decisions, you know, in the best interest of the client. So if the head rigger, the guy that's there, you know, has strong people working underneath them as his assistants, you know, he can manage the rig, manage the budget, manage client expectations, work with the other vendors, you know, because he has a good support system underneath him. So it's all it's always been about cultivating a good support system underneath. You know, and that's the only reason, that's the only way or reason BMW has succeeded is because of the group of individuals that teamed up together to create this company. And we're going to leave it there for now. We'll be back next time with the rest of our interview with Tony Benia of BMW Rigging. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show. Come to me.